another episode of the Young Mormon Feminist Podcast. I am your host, Julia. Sometimes we have a lot to say, but we don't know really how to say it or put it down on paper. The writing process is very different for academic papers and school papers than it is for blog posts and other personal writing. And sometimes making the transition can be daunting. Finding your own voice is a tough task. But some have said that writing about Mormon feminism is vital to both the movement and to personal development. To help us figure out how to work through this process, I have with me Jana Reese. Jana is the author or editor of many books, the most recent being The Twible, which has all of the chapters of the Bible in 140 characters or less. Her 2011 book, Flunking Sainthood, was selected as one of the top 10 religion books of the year by Publishers Weekly. She blogs on religion news service on various Mormon-related topics, and she is currently an acquisitions editor in the publishing industry, primarily acquiring in the areas of religion, history, popular culture, ethics, and biblical studies. Jana, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. That is quite the resume. You are obviously, you know, you live in the writing world. Have you always known that you are a writer? No. It's funny that you're a lawyer because I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. (laughs) That was my plan for a long time. And then I thought I wanted to be a pastor. And then I became a Mormon and couldn't be a pastor. So, no, I I was never one of these kids who sat in school and said, oh, I want to grow up and be a writer. I had no inkling that I wanted to do that. I liked writing. I I liked it better when I was a kid, actually, than I probably do now. But (laughs) I never never thought about doing it as a career. Uh, It was more that I, I got a PhD in religion in American religious history. And through that time, when I was in graduate school, I was writing book reviews for Kirkus, which is a sort of a review organ that's used for advance notice in the publishing industry. And that was part of how I supported myself in graduate school. And I found that I loved being part of this whole process. I loved getting books before they were published, um, being exposed to ideas I wouldn't necessarily find in my classes or just in my own, you know, rather narrow focused area of study. And so when the opportunity arose to go into publishing after I got my degree, the the pull factor was that I really loved what I'd already done. The push factor was that the academic job market was bleak. Hmm. And yeah, that has not changed (laughs) at all in, in the last 15 years. And that, you know, I had a very sad experience seeing one of my advisors be denied tenure when she was so deserving of tenure. So kind of coming off of that period of disenchantment at the end of graduate school, I went into publishing. And once I was in publishing, then I just started having opportunities to write books. I never actually wrote a book proposal for anything until I'd already published four or five books. Oh, wow. Because, yeah, which is not typical, but when you're in the publishing industry, you sort of get to know people and you, you go out to dinner and you they say, oh, you know, we're looking for someone to write a book on this topic. And then you're sitting there thinking, you know, that sounds fun. <laughs> so for me, it was not a formal kind of decision to ever become a writer. It was more something that I happened into and discovered that I was reasonably talented at, but not prodigiously so, you know, never one of these people who 
was just born to be a writer. That's just not me. Interesting. So, I mean, did you write personally throughout the whole time or did this kind of come later? Write personally, like journaling and that kind of thing? Yeah, journaling or like personal essays, things like that. Sporadically, yes. I, I wish that I had been a more diligent journal keeper. And if I have any piece of advice to give anyone who's thinking about becoming a writer, it's to journal every day. It The times when I have done that have been so fruitful. I just actually last night, I've, I've been finishing up a photo album, a digital scrapbook of a trip I took this summer to Turkey. And I was journaling every day. And I was so glad when I looked back at the journal for all of these details that I'd forgotten about different ruin sites that we visited and historic notes of things that I thought were interesting at the time but then had forgotten about. So it, you know, journaling is just the best thing that you can do for yourself. And I wish that I were more, well, I just wish that I were better and more disciplined about it. And do you think it help, journaling helps create better writing? Definitely. Writing is a muscle. You know, it's, it is like any kind of exercise. The more you use that muscle daily and try new things, the better you will get. And you can also use that muscle by just excessive reading. Not even extensive reading, but excessive reading. Be one of the people that just always has your nose in a book or a Kindle uh, all of those things, to notice language, to notice the, the decisions that an author is making, or a, or a blogger, you know, it doesn't have to be a book. It, there are so many different forms of writing that we're exposed to. But if you're conscious of how they're structuring it, what they're doing, the language that they're choosing, then every time you make a note of that mentally, you become a better writer yourself. That's great. So I kind of want to walk through the writing process to kind of figure out how as we're going along um, in the development of, let's say, you know, the case study is like a blog post. We want to write a blog post for, let's say, Young Mormon Feminist blog. Great. Um, you kind of, let's walk through that writing process uh, you know, from start to finish. So first is kind of like the inspiration, the idea. How do you typically find inspiration for your writing? Mostly from my reading. For me, I'm a little, in terms of my blog posts, I I find ideas mostly from reading, reading the news, uh, reading other people's blogs that have raised important questions that I think are great to add something to the conversation on. I'm supposed to blog three to five times a week. And so sometimes... I feel like I have to go hunting for things when really I'd rather just be sitting in my pajamas and reading something else. And so because I have a contract for blogging, it's not just a hobby, I am forced to be more disciplined about it than I would be otherwise. So I've set up a sort of system for handling my reading on a daily basis. I use Feedly.com, which is a very helpful aggregate of many different blogs, not just for Mormonism. I have a sort of a deck for Mormon topics and sites, but also one for other topics that I'm interested in, like economics, um, NPR News, BBC, lots of things. And so when I go through my Feedly just about every day, I am 
trying to find what would be interesting to think about and write about and what could I write about because lots of things are interesting that I'm not remotely qualified to write about. <laughs> or if if I had more time, I could become qualified to write about them. But that's, the I think, the peril of being a daily blogger or an almost daily blogger is the, the, the peril of thinking yourself an expert on anything, which you're not. Right. So how do you decide among all of those things, you know, all of the ideas that come at you through your news aggregator? How do you decide which topics to write about? Well, timeliness is important for blogging in a way that it isn't at all for the books that I write. So probably the most important issue as I'm going through the Feedly is is this still a timely issue that people are interested in? Because if they're not interested in it, then I don't really have a readership. Mm-hmm. Um, I only blog at the sufferance of others, I guess you would say. <laughs> and so if if my readers don't care about it or don't care about it anymore, then that kind of answers my question. My, you know, my primary question needs to always be audience and who wants this. And you also, as a blogger, you develop through your analytics, you develop a knowledge of who your readers are and what their interests are. So if one post, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm often surprised. I make this sound like way more of a science than it is. It's <laughs> far more of an art. But it's, it's interesting to me to see how many times a post was shared on social media or how many comments something engenders. Some things will engender a lot of comments but people don't share them very much. Other posts are shared like crazy and people don't comment on them, which is very interesting to me. But it's, uh, what I'm looking for is what they call engagement through social media. And that's basically how do people react to it and how do they integrate their own lives with it. And if it's not um, speaking to my core readers who are already a niche within a niche within a niche, right? Okay, mm-hmm. Mormonism is a small niche. <laughs> Liberal Mormons are an even smaller niche, maybe 20 to 30% of all United States Mormons. And within that group, uh, ones who would openly identify as LGBT allies, feminists, that's even smaller. So, right. you know, that's already a pretty self-selecting audience. But I need, I feel like I have a responsibility to help that audience as best I can to think about things, to point to good things. You know, sometimes blogs can dwell in negativity. And I I think of myself primarily as a curator rather than a writer on my blog because it is my task to try to point people toward things that are good or interesting, which I also use social media for. When I'm going through Feedly, uh, for example, I will see things that have come up on other sites by common consent, you know, uh, exponent, that sort of thing, and and then schedule those posts to go out throughout the day so that my readers can see other great stuff that's happening on other blogs and websites. That's great. Do you usually write on things that you have strong opinions about, or do you write on things that, um, like, the writing process helps you develop your opinion, or where, where does your... Um, topic selection fall in there. That is so interesting that you would ask that question because when we first opened this conversation, you introduced yourself as someone who was not really a writer, but you wouldn't ask that question if you weren't already a writer. Hmm. 
I mean that seriously because most people don't understand the great truth, which is that, as Stephen King puts it, I don't write to tell the world what I think, I write to find out what I think. And it is a process of discovery. I don't mean that in like a cheesy way, but it's sometimes surprising to you as a writer, even writing about fairly, uh, about nonfiction topics, you know, fairly uh, straightforward seeming topics that actually you can discover new things just through the process itself, new ways of looking at a question that had not occurred to you before you sat down to write. That to me is very exciting. So I guess the answer to your question is it's both. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, that's right. It's both. So let's talk about um, kind of the motivation to write when you don't you're, you don't feel inspired. Obviously, you said that you have this kind of schedule um, that forces you to write. Other people who are not professional writers don't necessarily have you know don't have a contract to force you to write, but you know need to force themselves to write anyway just for the benefit of writing. How do you get over? kind of any reticence or writer's block or lack of inspiration? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I have a whole variety of strategies in place, one of which is very harsh. Uh, I don't allow myself to go to the bathroom. I don't allow myself (laughs) to have a meal. You know, I don't allow myself to get up from my chair until I've written a certain number of words. Self-denial. It is. Yeah, I know. It's very Mormon, isn't it? It's like, I was trying to explain that to someone and she just raised her eyebrows and said, really? You you don't even let yourself go to the bathroom. That's kind of diseased. <laughs> so yeah, it is, it is possibly diseased, but you do get a lot done. It's, it's a good motivation if you don't let yourself leave the chair. Um, so when I'm writing a book in particular, I have some pretty draconian measures that I have to put in place where I, like I have this site called Leech Block or Leech Blocker or something where you can tell the site these are my time-sucking websites like Facebook, Twitter are online, a couple other things. I am not allowed to go on these websites during the following hours of the day. <laughs> so I can't check social media until I think it's 10.30. And the idea is that my writing is to come first and that I am at my best in the of the morning. So I'm either writing my book or I'm editing someone else's work, which is I make my primary living as an editor give my best to that work so it's unusual for me to be able to say that a book actually changed my life but I think that the book um, write your dissertation in 15 minutes a day did that at least for my writing life and one of the suggestions that she makes is something she calls park on the downhill slope with your writing a lot of us sabotage our writing by imagining that we're going to be able to sit down in one day and write a full perfect scene or we're going to be able to write a full perfect blog post or whatever it is and we we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot because the next day when we have to sit down and pick up the next scene or write another post or whatever it is we're not in the groove at all and we can't seem to get there that's where the writer's block kicks in So she suggests you set a goal for yourself, whether it's I'm going to sit here and write for two hours, no matter what I produce, 
and call it a day after that. Or in my case, I'm going to write for a thousand words and then stop no matter where I am. If I'm in the middle of a sentence, I will stop at a thousand words. And then the the net result is, A, you feel great for the rest of the day because you made your goal and you can go off and do other things without feeling that constant weight of oppressive guilt. (laughs) The Mormon guilt? Yeah, I know, and you combine writer's guilt with Mormon guilt, and boy, it's pretty pretty guilty. (laughs) Uh, But then the second thing is that you can feel empowered the next day to read over your last couple paragraphs and be able to pick it right back up. You can that's the parking on the downhill slope. You release the parking brake and you just coast for a while until oh yeah, that's what I was doing and that's where I was going to go with that argument and you can pick it back up without that sense of terror that you have to start from scratch the next day. That's Sounds genius. <laughs> I wish I thought of it. But all I can say is that I've recommended it to a lot of people. I, I think it works wonders. Well, that's great. So do you do that with your blog posts, or do you kind of just bang them out in one day? <laughs> well, my I do those in one day because uh, my blog posts used to be long and things that I could be proud of, you know, being reasonably well-crafted and Unfortunately, that's just not how blogging works, which in the end has been a good discipline for me to realize that it's okay to not be a perfectionist. So (laughs) part of it is that with blogging, uh, we used to say maybe no more than 1,200 words for a blog post, and then it became no more than 1,000 words, and it has gone down and down, so that now at RNS, we have a pretty firm guideline for all of the bloggers that we're not supposed to go over 750 words. Um, I have noticed, true enough, you know, since I began adhering to that in February, that my traffic has increased, which is very nice, of course. But it's a sad commentary, perhaps, on where our society is going as a reading culture that we want shorter and shorter posts. So, and, and honestly, some of the ones that I I write that are more in the 500 word length tend to get shared more often. So, although that's an ironic commentary coming from the woman who wrote the Twible. Yes, I guess that's true. I kind of deserve it, don't I? I've contributed to the terrible mess that we're in. That's a good point. Wow. Uh, So, in terms of like kind of along this keeping the motivation, there are a lot of blogs out there. There are a lot of writers out there. How do, how can one feel confident in what they're writing um, and not just think, well, someone else is writing it. That's been discussed. I'm not adding anything. You know, how can you get over that and really kind of put it on paper and think that it's valuable? I suppose. Well, it's it's mixed because on the one hand, we we need to keep that sense of humility that not everything that happens to us is worth writing about and not every opinion that we have is something that will edify others. But on the other hand, sometimes you simply got to sing. You, you have to shout. You have to write. And when that happens... And when you feel that fire in the belly, you simply must obey. That's part of the creative impulse. 
so if you do that, then figure out as strategically as you can while still remaining true to your own self, what hasn't been said in this conversation? What can I add? And I find many times it's your unique voice. No one else has had your experiences. I mean, particularly if you're talking about issues that impinge upon you directly in a way that they might not hit someone else so directly, you should write about that. Share your experience, whether it's online, whether it's in your local newspaper, wherever it is. Or, you know, if it's just for your, uh, in a week, you write to your family who are scattered around the world. All of those are valid ways for you to talk about what you think. So you're describing like your voice and putting yourself out there. And all of this is very you know, personal. Writing is very personal. How do you handle the criticism of like your ideas and your writing when you put so much out there? You know, that is, gosh, (laughs) I wish I had the answer to that question. When I started blogging in 2010, I think I was pretty naive about the kinds of responses that I might get from people. Some of them some of them were very lovely responses, even when they disagreed with what I was saying. But some of them were very hurtful, personal attacks, including one that I will never forget, which was a week after my father died, I posted on BeliefNet where I was blogging at that time, just a little sort of two or three sentence due to a death in the family. I will be taking a break for the next two weeks and will not have any new blog posts. And the guy named Josh, wherever he is, Josh, I still remember you. <laughs> he posted what you really mean to say is that you're being excommunicated from the LDS church because of apostasy. And, you know, you're taking a break from writing for that reason. I was stunned. Oh, my he, gosh. Yeah, really. That it was, it was like being punched in the stomach. I would say that out of all the comments that I've ever gotten on my blog, some doozies, right? It was the worst because we as a people are called to mourn with those who mourn and yet yet there is this gosh person out there who is seizing, exploiting a moment of personal weakness or personal vulnerability in someone else. I was pretty horrified. I mean, it wasn't that Josh was saying he was going to hunt me down with a gun or anything like that, but just the sense of pure hatred that would inspire a remark like that. Wow, that was pretty rotten. I've I've certainly become a lot tougher since 2010 when that uh, maybe a little more cynical as well. Sometimes I can't even read the blog comments until two or three days later. It's part of my job as a blogger to read and interact with comments uh, also to delete spam, which, you know, I have to go through and moderate out any spam that has managed to worm its way in, mm-hmm. which it tends to do. And and sometimes it's very discouraging. <laughs> I have tried to set some ground rules on my, for how people converse, and I have, in the last year or so, started editing out their comments so that if someone includes a personal attack on anyone, another commenter or me, then I will 
delete that part of the comment and just say this portion of the comment has been deleted for personal insult that is not tolerated here in the story. And they do get the message. Sometimes they just disappear because that's what they want. You know, they want to be able to harm people online. And if I don't give them the chance to be a bully on my blog, they're just going to go and do it somewhere else. Well, I say good riddance. You know, <laughs> do that. Not helping out here. Right. Well, that that was kind of my next question was talking about how, you, you know, there's it's there's one thing for someone to criticize your writing or your ideas. And then there's another kind of phenomenon in Mormon blogging is that it's criticizing someone's testimony. Mm-hmm. And obviously you described a very personal example of that. So how... But it happens regularly, and it happens to anyone who writes on Mormonism, pretty much. Yes. So how do you, you know, put up your defenses against that and not let it get to you? You know, you the last couple of books that I've written have been humor books. The one that I'm working on next is also a humor book. And to me, humor is the single most powerful deflecting shield for crap like that. Hmm. And uh, one idea that I got this week, I don't know if I'm going to have time to follow through with it, but I don't know if you saw on Facebook being shared was this hilarious uh, thing called all the comments on every cooking blog. Oh Did my gosh, see? no, but now I have to go look it up. <laughs> it was so funny, but I laughed and laughed. I thought, how fun would it be to write a blog post where I'm parodying some of the worst comments on my blog and other blogs that I've seen like there was the guy earlier this year who said, you are an accomplice of Lucifer and a wicked person. And man, and if I were an accomplice of Lucifer, wouldn't I get paid? You know, <laughs> isn't he the god of this world? It would be really nice to get paid for stuff like that. But anyway, you just have to laugh at it. It helps to have other friends who are writers um, to talk about this kind of thing with because sometimes it does get under your skin and that point you just have to take a walk go do something else get some perspective because your online life is not your whole life it's not even really a huge part of your life if you are having a balanced life so get some perspective you know there as i mentioned to you in our pre-conversation you know i do a lot of writing in my job and it's kind of technical and it's not very creative um and so i I have a personally, I have a difficult time moving from that kind of more academic or technical tone that I've trained and honed to this more personal, casual um, tone of blog posts and commentaries. How do you recommend making that transition? Mm. Well, guys, that would be different for every person. Sometimes people find it very freeing to write under a pseudonym if they're trying to be more self-expressive online. I don't mean necessarily, you know, saying things that you wouldn't, uh, saying things that are mean or critical. I just mean things that you wouldn't necessarily want to intersect your professional life. It is acceptable to use an online pseudonym. I don't do that, obviously. Right. Consequences for that. Sometimes I wish I could. <laughs> um, so that's one way. But I think also 
if you get to a, you're, you're very early in your career. And so you, you probably have a lot of senior colleagues who are looking over your shoulder and, and thinking about a potential partner someday or whatever it is in the law uh, for academics or a lot of the editorial clients I get, um, academics who are wanting to write for a popular audience and are surprised to find how difficult it actually is. For them, it's always their colleagues. They think they have to footnote everything. They think they have to over-explain everything and that they can't ever be personal or it would jeopardize their objectivity. Hmm. So I think for probably every professional discipline, there is some kind of um, barrier. But I tell you, it's so freeing. It is. Like when I published Flunking Sainthood, this was a memoir about failure. It was a memoir about my life, my family, my total inability to stick with a spiritual practice. And it was embarrassing. You know, it's a funny book. Also, at least it was for me, it was very hard to just put it out there that, yeah, okay, I failed at this, and then I failed again at something else, and then I failed again. Because we like to just present ourselves from grace to grace and strength to strength. But it is surprising and wonderfully freeing when you find how much you're being honest about what your life really looks like gives other people permission to just say, oh, I'm so relieved to hear you say that. Uh, let their hair down and be real. So, and in Mormon culture, frankly, we don't have enough of that. We have a pretty systematized, artificial culture at church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had so many more to me today. I just feel like if people really, if people knew what I really believed or what I really thought, they wouldn't even let me in the building. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your current job. You are an acquisitions editor. Well, I'm not an acquisitions editor at a publishing house anymore. So when you read that, I realized, oh, God, I guess I need to go back and change that in bio. I'm still an editor, but I work on a freelance basis for a number of publishing houses and for individual authors who hire me to edit their books and articles. Got it. So, yeah. but, but you read a lot of other people's writing. I mean, that's like what yes. you basically do all day. That's my day. Yeah. <laughs> so what makes good writing good and what makes bad writing bad oh gosh i know that's an incredibly broad question and it's totally unfair for me to ask it i just don't know how to ask it in any other way no, it's it's fine it's a good question and I, part of what i wanted to say about that is specificity some of the worst writing is simply generic writing you feel like it could have been written by anyone and that's true whether it's an academic project for Oxford University Press or a personal memoir. Right now I'm editing both of those things. And in both cases, specificity is what makes it good. Um, people, I don't know, in memoir, the challenge is to take the particular and make it universal. So your particular life with your unique experiences that no one else has had, how to relate those in a way that people will say, oh, wow, well, I didn't lose a child, but I have experienced grief. I know it feels like that resonates with me. Or someone can say, as they're reading the book, well, I didn't grow up poor, like, you know, 
walls and glass castle, but I know what it's like to to go without or to to worry about mentally family members, whatever it is. How do you take your unique experiences, express them in a very specific, particular way, but always with the eye to helping the reader identify those points of emotional resonance. resonance sorry. So it's that's one of the great challenges. And frankly, it's hard to do and hard to teach. Yeah, that sounds hard. <laughs> but <laughs> but I but I know what you mean. Like you know make helping make your experiences relatable. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what makes compelling writing compelling. It does. Other than the dissertation book that you've already mentioned that you recommend, are there any other resources that you recommend? There's the Artist's Way, which it's a 12-week program, a spiritual path to higher creativity is the subtitle, and it, it's a course discover recovering your creative self i just did it for the first time this summer and it was very helpful for me at the time i'm trying to muscle through the first chapters of a novel i've never written a novel before and kind of have no idea what i'm doing but it's fun to play and to have permission to play which i think the book provides it's it's a very disciplined 12 weeks so every week focuses on something new you start out just thinking about childhood and how, whether you were encouraged as a child to create, whether you were lauded for your creativity or, you know, criticized for it or shoved off into doing something practical, something that would pay you a salary, etc. And then you move on from there to a lot of different exercises to think about recovering your creative power and what that would look like that I found absolutely stunning about doing the artist play was that it occurred to me, based on a challenge in the book, that I've never prayed for creative inspiration before. I have prayed many times for a writer to help, to have God please help me muscle through something, help me get possible, <laughs> you know, help me uh, or, or help me think about something maybe differently, but in terms of Praying for an idea. I've never done that before. And that's one of the challenges that she issues in the book. And darned it if at night, after I hadn't prayed this prayer, I had a dream about the plot of the novel that was way past where I was currently stuck in the novel. It was further down the line plot with some things I hadn't even considered having in the book. And I woke up from that dream feeling amazed, just absolutely amazed that Maybe it really is true that God wants to be part of our creative process and how exciting that would be. Wow. So it was, it was a wonderful thing. I, I really think the book is cool. That's a really interesting experience. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. This has been incredibly enlightening and helpful and inspirational. I feel <laughs> like motivated to like try to focus on writing. Um, do you have any final words of advice for our listeners? Oh, gosh. You know, there are great resources out there. Um, writer conferences are tremendously helpful. Being part of a writer's group. I'm in a writer's group with just two other people. We've been meeting for years. And there's a lot of trust that has developed over time. If you have a couple of people and you can just say, look, every other week we're all going to bring a few pages 
to share with each other and talk about how to make them better, whatever kind of writing that is. And it gives you a deadline so that you have to have something. You have to be able to produce something on the day. Sometimes writers need that. But it also gives you a sense of collegiality that sometimes writing is a very lonely, isolated process. And it helps to walk that journey with other people. Whether they're published or not doesn't really matter. What matters is you're going through the process together. That's great. Well, you kind of hinted that what's on the horizon for you, this novel that you're working on. Um, No, not really. I mean, I don't think anybody in your audience will ever see this book. Uh, (laughs) I'm not even sure I will see this book. So when I said I'm working on another book for next year, that's not the book the humor book that I'm uh, working on that's about gratitude it's a nonfiction book about gratitude which is very fun and I'm really excited about it but I don't know that my fiction is ever going to be ready for prime time and for anybody else to see but me and maybe the two people in my writing group but that's it (laughs) but you find that fulfilling it's very cool and it's it's great for me because I need to be very practical about not doing writing or editing doesn't actually pay my bills. You know, it's very cool for me to be able to say, I'm going to take an hour today and write this novel that we'll see only because I want to, only because I feel drawn to do that and to not apologize for that. And women especially, I feel like we are forced to, apologize a lot of time and in some cases stifle our own creativity in order to serve the needs of others and you know look there are times in our lives when we do have to do that when all people especially christians have to do that we live for other people but we also have been given these talents by god and it is our duty to develop them just like biblical talents in the new testament so and that takes time it takes effort and it also takes saying no to people sometimes. So it's kind of empowering to say no, you know? We should all practice that. Everybody just say no right now. No, no. (laughs) No. It's fun. That's great. Well, thank you. I'm really glad you didn't say no to doing this podcast because this has been really, really fun for me. And it's been really helpful. And I I know that our listeners, it's going to be helpful for them too. So thank you so much for joining us, Jenna. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 